This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Perilous Paths, the story of Robert McClellan, Indian fighter, soldier, trapper, explorer, and member of the John J. Astor Fur Company. And the author is George G. McClellan, and George joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, George. Well, hello. It's, it's very nice to talk to you. Well, it's always great to talk about history of real people that have gone before us. Uh, in this case, uh, your fascination with this incredible uh, wilderness man, this uh, trailblazer, uh, frontiersman. You're somewhat of a, an adventurer yourself. We'll find out about that because of your experiences in the past. But here's the life and adventures of Robert McClellan. Uh, grew up in the Alleghenies frontier, learning Indian skills and languages. Uh, as you write about him, uh, became packers for the American Army, moving into the Ohio Territory. Uh, even uh, because of his Indian skills, became a spy and a ranger for General Mad Anthony Wayne. We know that name and became an Army quartermaster, ending up in St. Louis, where he became a fur trapper and trader. Uh, of course, uh, a lot of history here. Uh, we know about John Jacob Astor Fur Company. We know about the Oregon Trail. We, of course, know about Lewis and Clark. This is a very uh, famous time in the expansion of the United States. Uh, critical time, right? Yes, it is. It was critical because uh, the fur trades were opening up and the British were north of us and they wanted to claim the Spaniards were west and southwest of us. And they had a claim, and uh, they wanted no intrusion from Americans, but we were going to do it anyway. Well, and it took some uh, really uh, pioneer-type uh, frontiersmen that were literally didn't seem like they were afraid of anything. Isn't that interesting? Can you imagine doing that today? Oh, my uh, goodness. Maybe the unknown. Yeah. But you know there are savage Indians out there, and but how to get through it without getting your head lifted, that was... A, that was a monumental piece of courage that they had to endure to, do, to even think about doing that. Well, the Indians and then just the uh, hardships of just the territory, the frontier, the weather. I mean, it's uh, more than most of us can comprehend living the way we do today. But uh, before we get into more of the details about Robert McClellan, uh, George, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're so interested in this story. Well, I was born in an area of of Southern California, they had a lot of pioneer history, the San Bernardino Valley. And uh, California had a lot of history and wasn't too old when I was born. And the areas that were available to me, even as a youth, sparked my interest in Western history, gold mining history, uh, pioneers uh, who wanted to cross the Mojave Desert. And I was able to, as I got older, to visit these places and, and see these places, and, and I fell in love with history, just the idea of what and how people lived before me compared to what I was living in uh, it was was just uh, was just fascinating. Uh, by the same token, even my children are now fascinated that I lived in an area where there were no interstates or freeways. So if I wanted to go from my house, it was on a two-lane road that wound up and down and around mountains and things like that. It didn't cut a straight path. So we all have our differences, and people who look back are interested in that. History caught me. And then as I moved around the world, um, I went to other historical places, uh, historical in the sense that they affected America, the Philippine Islands, for example, which was important to us in World War II because of the uh, the Corregidor, the Death March, the Bataan Death March, I mean to say, and the prisoners who were kept at Cabana Tuan up in central Luzon. These were all places that I got to visit. 
And then later I lived in Hawaii where the Pearl Harbor attack occurred. And, and then later I lived in Europe and spent several years in Europe and got to see all the battlefields there. And then moved here to Georgia where it's rife with Civil War history. And I get to enjoy all that as well. I'm, I, I probably, my, my wife says I was born 100 years too late. <laughs> Well, at the same time, uh, your life has been filled, as you've pointed out, with a lot of travel, but also adventure, even danger and intrigue. Well, that was the na- nature of the job. And unlike the, the television show of the same name, uh, our work was a little, a little uh, less dramatic and uh, uh, more detailed. But uh, it took us to places that we had to go, yes. Certainly did. Well, George, uh, is Robert... A ancestor, Robert McClellan, is he an ancestor of George McClellan? Well, we have to be careful when you say George McClellan, people often think of the Union general, George B. McClellan, and I'm not related to him either. Uh, he had two children, and they both died without issue. So if we have a common thread, it's before him. However, I cannot say that I am related directly to Robert McClellan because there's no evidence he took a wife or had a family. His brother did, though, and his brother was in uh, was the sheriff for three tours in Butler County, Ohio, which is just west of Cincinnati, and Hamilton. And uh, they were all both packers for the army. But uh, Robert became a soldier, and and his uh, brother did not. And his brother stayed there in Hamilton and raised a family and. It died there. McClellan, he just went off on a foot tour of America, being one of the first to get there if he could. I, I cannot claim that I'm directly related, but I think there's a, I think there has to be a, a tie there somewhere, and we're looking for it. Now, there are a lot of books written about the, this time period, the Ohio Indian Wars, but it seems like, as you found, most of them are for juveniles. And, of course, school textbooks of, of late, as you point out, usually ignore this period because uh, it was so brutally, uh, it was just a a brutal attack on Native Americans. So uh, yours is is factual as much as you can through your research and you uh, bring to life a very important part of history. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, it's true. It was brutal, but not always so. And uh, there were Indian tribes that they encountered who offered them assistance and food and, and uh, made them canoes and traded for horses and, and furs and that sort of thing. And then there were the other tribes like the Blackfoot who brooked no interference in their lives and would kill anybody who went into it, whether they were another Indian tribe or white men or anything else. So that was the politics of Indians. It was like that. Yeah, it was a hard time. You had to pick your battles and know when you could win them and be skilled at survival. Now, Robert McClellan was part of a very important uh, fur trading company. Uh, uh, Were were they the number one fur traders at that time? Uh, They were the number one American fur traders. The Louisiana Purchase covered the entire central portion of the United States, extended even into a little bit of Canada. Canada was definitely British, and Canada had two competing fur companies, the Northwest Company and the Hudson Bay Company. They were in competition for furs with John Jacob Astor. Uh, and this was this started right after the Lewis and Clark expedition. The British, or the Canadians, if you will, had pretty much covered Western Canada even before Americans got out there. Uh, there was even a, Brit, a Brit or a Canadian who got to the Pacific Coast on foot first. But the Lewis and Clark for American history were the ones who opened up that territory. Astor, John Jacob Astor, organized this company to find a foot route to Astoria, and he also sent a ship around the Horn to arrive at the mouth of the Columbia River at the same time. And the, the trip out, and that's the trip from east to west, was led by a fellow named Hunt. And uh, they arrived there, but they arrived there ragtag, and they took a route completely different than Lewis and Clark's because they wanted to avoid the Blackfeet Indians. 
and they discovered the hardships of the Snake River through uh, through Idaho and uh, the deserts that they encountered. Most people don't realize that eastern Oregon is primarily a desert. Uh, Wyoming, the south half of Wyoming is primarily a desert, but it, although it's a mile high, so the winters get brutally cold. But these are things they encountered, and uh, they had to carry what they wore and what they ate. And when they ran out, they had to shoot what they what they um, had to eat. And and uh, as romantic as it sounds, the buckskin is not that good of a garment after it gets wet. And moccasins would wear out in a day or two, so they had they were constantly repairing or rebuilding moccasins, making new moccasins. Interesting story, things that are absolutely not known uh, to to modern day people unless they read about it. So McClellan is uh, in competition. His main competitor and protagonist is this guy named Manuel Lisa. What was the big conflict there? Manuel Lisa, interesting character. He uh, if if you just listen to McClellan and his first partner Robert Crooks, you think Manuel Lisa was the biggest scallywag the world ever produced. He was a, he was Spanish. He was born in Spanish colonial New Orleans. His uh, his father was a government official in St. Augustine, Florida, where his mother was born in St. Augustine, Florida. Coincidentally, I lived in that county, St. John's County. Uh, for four years when I was working for the Navy. So I'm acquainted with the history of the area there as well. In any event, Manuelisa, the French were instrumental in opening up the Missouri River. That's why we had names like St. Louis. And if you look hard enough, you'll find a lot of French names throughout the, the, along the river, the Missouri, uh, Mississippi River. Lisa went up there with the intent to become a Indi- uh, trader with the Indians. And uh, the Custu brothers were the big, the rich people in charge of that, and you didn't do anything without going through them. You had to have supplies, you had to have guns, you had to have traps, canoes, barges, and men, and they supplied those things. So Manuelisa uh, had a jump on McClellan and Crooks, and they were kind of like freebooters. They went in there late and tried to do what they wanted to do, but they were poaching on what Lisa considered his property, Lisa had already established had already established uh, relations with the several Indian tribes up the Missouri River, the Missouri River being the most important, as far as they were concerned, avenue into the Northwest Territory of what was then still the known as Louisiana Purchase. And you met different kinds of Indians along the river. You met the Sioux and the Arapahoes and the Arikias and the Mandans, and some were helpful and some were not. And and it was Lisa who McClellan and Crooks fought, had the Sioux Indians stop him on his trip up the river and, and uh, let him, uh, forbid him from any further progress on the river. And so there were these differences of opinion as to who was who and what was what. In the end, McClellan lost that battle. He got robbed by the Indians. And uh, that's just before he met uh, Wilson Price Hunt, who was organizing the uh, Astor Fur Company expedition. What would you say is Robert McClellan's greatest achievement? Well, he survived, uh, that he survived the ordeal and and made it back to St. Louis, where where a few years later he died. Uh, the the um, Believe it or not, he died of being bled to death. That was still the art form in those days. Um wow. His greatest achievement, he just survived that thing. He went on foot from east to west and returned again. And we're talking 2,000 miles, starting at St. Louis. And probably had a lot of Indians uh, ready to uh, kill him if they could find him. Well, certainly the Crow Indians. That that was the lot that uh, they were more afraid of. The Crows were between them and the Blackfeet, and they wanted to stay away from the Blackfoot Indians. But uh, the Crows, they they were wide-ranging through what is now Jackson Hole, the Green River Valley, uh, the Wind River Valley in Wyoming, and uh, and also in the Snake River Valley in Idaho. And that's where the Crows 
stole all their horses and half of their equipment and put them on foot on their trip back. You know, they were very wary of the crows. They tried to tried to do things to avoid being seen by them, but not always successful. But all of them survived. The six of them survived. We're not killed by the crows. The book is titled Perilous Paths. Uh, George McClellan, the author, he's written this story focusing on the hardships these great pioneers, uh, frontiersmen faced and, uh, and the politics that shaped the country they were exploring. Uh, George, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available from Barnes & Noble and uh, Amazon.com. And uh, our universe who published it also uh, pervades the book uh, uh, for anybody who inquires. And uh, it, while it's not a long book, it's detailed and it's action-packed and it's illustrated. Most books this size aren't illustrated, but uh, a little side story there. My illustrator is a fellow named Mark Menendez, and he, he is a direct descendant of the first colonial governor of Spanish Florida and painted his portrait, which is in the governor's house in St. Augustine. And while I, that picture is only six years old, that painting, uh, I, I have not seen it, but I have been in the governor's house many times, and so we have a little close community um, relationship with Mark Menendez and I, but he had fun doing my paintings. I even put him, told him to paint himself, put himself into one of the pictures, and he <laughs> is, is a new full of, of uh, uh, Canadian voyagers, and he's in the right front seat of that first canoe. And that's what he looks like. <laughs> a real character in his own right. Well, George, we appreciate you sharing your story with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. You're entirely welcome. I appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk to me. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel. The inspiration for the movie, Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection. With host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things. And are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Show Business, and the author, and in this case, the photographer and, and the writer is Ron Schramm, and Ron joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Ron. How are you doing, Steve? Great to have you with us. Uh, show Business, we're talking about trade shows. Uh, you attended... I don't know how many. We'll find out. Have you attended a lot of these uh, trade shows? Of course, businesses compete for the attention of buyers uh, throughout the United States. They put on these uh, trade shows, and 
They present the products in striking, often, uh, as you put it, outrageous ways at trade shows. They're trying to get people's attention. And you've created this collection of black and white photographs uh, displaying the theatrical ways in which these products are marketed to American businesses and, of course, to America. I mean, nothing happens until somebody sells something, right? That's right. And so how did you get involved in this kind of business, Ron? Well, uh, I got a job photographing exhibits in a trade show. That's, that's a, an established business. And companies that exhibit in trade shows spend a lot of money to exhibit. So they want to, they buy photographs because the exhibit's a one-time thing. It's up for three or four days and then it's down. It's gone. It's in the boxes. So they want to photograph the exhibit. So I used to photograph those exhibits. And in the course of photographing those exhibits, I was also, I was in the trade show and I would walk around the trade show and I would see things that really caught my eye, not necessarily for business uses, but for visual interest. And these, some of those outtake shots are in this book. In fact, the, the cover shows the Riba twins, two, two women, nice-looking women, who uh, sort of rented themselves out to whoever paid uh, to bring people into the exhibits. And... Uh, Obviously, it worked because they they established a lifetime career doing that. So they were models at trade shows. Models at trade shows. That's the word I was looking for, models. Mm-hmm. Models. There were lots of models in these shows. And uh, it's sort of a, for a model, it was a, a extra paying gig, right. so to speak. Yeah. If they didn't do uh, in front of camera shots or they weren't doing fashion Many of them did trade shows, so they were nice looking, and uh, I looked and I photographed. Well, you were capturing the moment, just capturing that moment. I was always looking for the moment, but uh, sometimes I sort of structured it. I mean, I like the cover, I have the two of them, the two Riba twins, I forget their first names, but uh, they're in front of a juice dispenser. And I just, you know, posed them, and uh, rather than have them on one one on one side of the booth and one on the other side of the booth, um, of course they were models, so they wanted to pose. Sure. So, well, that's what they do. Exactly. That's right. That's how they get paid, and they're always looking for more publicity. That's the name of the game, isn't it? That's right. And I'm there to, to grant it. And and you with the camera, uh, you're the perfect person to uh, help promote them. That's right. That's what I was there for. Now, we're talking about Chicago's McCormick Place, right? Right. A lot of trade shows. This place is huge. It is huge. Huge. Yeah. <laughs> and and you, uh, you took us, you're taking us back into the 80s. Right. Yeah, most of them were shot in the 80s. Uh, it, it, at that time, it was the largest convention center in the United States. It, it's still, I'm sure, right up there, isn't it? Well, there's more than one building, and uh, most of this takes place in McCormick Place East, which was right on the Lake Michigan, and it was a massive hall. And if you look in the book, in the beginning of the book, there's a picture of the the inside of the hall empty, and you can see there's there happens to be a little truck in there. They're working on doing some maintenance work. The truck looks like a toy. The place is huge. Right, yeah. and it's it's hard to envision a show filling that space, but these shows did. It's like an instant city for the weekend. That's right, and uh, people uh, firms would rent ten by ten was the basic size, ten feet wide, ten feet long, on an aisle, and uh, bigger the firm, the more space they would rent. But they wanted photographs of their exhibits. Mm-hmm. Because they had spent so much money to ship their product to the show and staff it to bring the people into town, uh, to put them up in a hotel to meet customers. It's important for, for businesses to, to, to have a face-to-face 
uh, meeting. It really helps cement the uh, the arrangement or the I don't know what the word is. <clears throat> Just closing the deal, wouldn't you say? Closing the deal. Well, this <laughs> yeah. is the beginning of the deal. Oh, but, the beginning. That's true. Yeah. But if you like the people, uh, you're going to do business with them. Right. And maybe before the show is over, you, are, you have closed the deal. Yeah. That's right. And yeah. you would certainly go out to dinner with them, too. So mm-hmm. and Chicago is the perfect place for that to happen. But my focus was what was happening inside the trade show. Now, some of your photos you call classic. Give us some examples. I would refer you to uh, a picture called The Sale. It was on uh, page 61, and it's a picture of uh, a show booth personnel, exhibit personnel, making his pitch to the attendee. And uh, the lighting in Macquarie Place looks like rays. In the, in, in the sky, but they're actually light fixtures. It's sort of, his, the energy is flowing out of him. And uh, that was Macquarie Place. That was the main hall in the East Building. And uh, it's beautiful. To me, it's beautiful. And that's what I was looking for. I was interested in all types of visuals like there's another picture in the book that shows uh, these giant coke bottles they're like 20 feet high made out of plastic but they're realistic and uh, so I took a more formal picture with no people even though it's got a couch in there uh, visually it's very interesting and of course when you're there it just really grabs your attention that's right and my attention was grabbed. <laughs> mm-hmm. There you go. Yeah. And uh, again, you know, beautiful women always uh, have uh, that attractive uh, uh, element to putting on one of these trade shows. And uh, you've got one with a Chevy Astro van at one time. That was uh, something important at the at the trade show, I guess. Huh? That was a, a car, I think, that just never, maybe it was produced, but it was never really, never really caught on in the market. Mm-hmm. And, uh, or here's another picture of a woman driving a forklift truck. <laughs> now, which is really strange, but it's certainly, if you look at the picture, everybody's staring. What, are they staring at the model? Well, they've got to see the, the forklift. And that's why these people were at the trade show, because they, they garnered attention. And that's all a, uh, a producer can ask. They want people looking at their product. Well, it can turn into a selling circus. Yes, it is. It's a selling circus. I would call it, it's a jungle. Because once you go out on the trade show, trade show floor, excuse me, uh, it's it's just a massive community going down these aisles, and each booth is 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 uh, competing to get those buyers into their booth so they can make their pitch. And there's me too, uh, looking at everything too, with a, with a kind of a different eye. I'm looking at the presentation of the exhibit, and I'm looking for the oddities, which I see. All right. you have some uh, other uh, examples of these classics? Well, I, I don't know if they're classics, but they, they're certainly, because I've, I've never seen anybody do these kind of pictures before, but I couldn't avoid them. Uh, here's one. Uh, this guy is doing a little golf thing. He's he's hitting a, a ball into a kind of a, a little game, a little golf game, but this, the model is like hanging on him and uh, rubbing his legs with her knees. And it's, it's very, he's supposed to, well, he can't concentrate. And uh, it, it causes... Someone to someone to see what's going on, 
and I was there to see what was going on, and I took a picture of it. But there's another picture in here. Uh, it happens to be the design engineering show. This huge gear, I don't know what the kind of gear, some kind of reduction gear, but I asked the booth person to kneel down so that he's level with the, the gear. And uh, on the facing page, it says, uh, you know, I carried the sucker from Jersey, and I, I've grown kind of fond of it. And that's, uh, I'm sure he got fond of it in the, in the three or four days that the show was open. The gear was sitting right there, and he was talking about it all the time. It, it's, uh, these pictures just record what they were there for and what they did in one picture. And, of course, it's all about selling, selling, selling. So uh, this kind of, uh, of an event was uh, very, very important, and you were there to uh, capture these photos for your clients, and, uh, and you shared them with the world to show how uh, these trade shows, what they looked like. It's the showbiz, and the showbiz still uh, happens today. Uh, there's still trade shows. Every association has uh, has a trade show because trade shows make a lot of money. They sell the space to exhibitors who pay to exhibit, and some of the money goes back to the association, which sponsors the show. So no matter what uh, what uh, job you do, there's an association for you. You know, almost every every uh, career that you can think of, from mortuary to to airplanes, it's there's a trade show, and there's a trade show for every parts of airplanes too. Um, that's why Macquarie Place is there, and that's why Macquarie Place has become such a large. It's a large part of Chicago's economy. Yeah, they bring a lot of people to these shows, definitely, and so all that impacts the economy. That's right. Well, the restaurant business, the, the taxi business, uh, it's a huge industry. And it's much, trade shows are so effective because you actually meet the person that could be your customer. And that making that, that connection can make the sale. It's much more personal than just buying something out of a out of a catalog or even a an e catalog. If you make that connection, that can last a lifetime. Show business, and it's all about sell, sell, sell. This is Ron's. These are Ron's photographs of uh, many trade shows uh, through the years back in the eighties. Ron, tell us how to get your book, Show Business. Uh, the book is available through uh, iUniverse Publishing in Indianapolis, and uh, it's www.iUniverse.com, I-U-N-I-V-E-R-S-E.com, iUniverse, and it's available through them. Well, thank you, Ron, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Show me the money! Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. 
Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage, connectwithjulianainmedia.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Malibu Med and the Sweet Smell of Money. And the author is C. Rex Satorius. And C. Rex joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, C. Rex. Morning, Steve. How are things with you? Well, I'm doing great. And uh, this book, really different, a medical thriller. And I love the way you put it. This isn't science fiction. This is science fact. So this stuff really uh, goes on in these laboratories that you describe. And, of course, the all the biotechnology and the drug development, uh, we hear about it a lot. We see it on the TV. It's All kinds of drugs are coming out. Uh, but this is a reality story. Everything in these pages, as you say, it happens. And it's a book about ambition and hope and uncertainty and fear. And it centers around a medical school in Malibu, California, where they're conducting gene therapy trials. And, of course, there's opposition to the use of animals. There's competition, intrigue, and always the sweet smell of money. <laughs> well, well, I suppose that drives everything for yep. most people, the sweet smell of money. Um, yeah, you're right. It, it's based on what actually occurs on a day-to-day basis um, you know, at, at medical schools and pharmaceutical companies a, across the country. Um, the characters are, are fictitious, as is, of course, Malibu Medical School. There is right. no medical school in Malibu. There's an excellent university, which I've chosen to replace for the course of the novel, um, but, uh, but this it's, is your uh, world. Really fact, but this is your world. You understand this world. Tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I've been in um, biomedical research for um, thirty years or so, more in in diagnostic devices than in um, drug development. But they overlap to an incredibly great degree, and much of what is in the book has been based on observations that I've made, stories that I've heard. It's not my personal life, but it's, it, it could easily have been my personal life I'm in, a, in, a different, uh, in a different dimension, a different world, as it were. Well, it's a big money world, and it's an important world. Obviously, without uh, the big money possibilities, we wouldn't have the great drugs that we have today that help so many people. But at the same time, uh, there's always that faction, and that's kind of what you're, you're you're taking this to the limit of of the of this kind of uh, intrigue and what what if right the what if factor. I think so. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the society we live in is is very complicated, and you know, people have said there's really no organization more complicated than than an academic medical center, medical school, where you're treating patients, you're doing research, you're trying to develop new drugs and you're interacting with the pharmaceutical industry, there are conflicts of interest, there are pressures um, that are in fact enormous at times. Um, the ultimate goal, of course, is is for the good of uh, patient health, but there's a lot of um, obstacles and uh, pitfalls along the way. Tell us about this main character, Ahmed Adams, Dr. Adams. Uh, he's called Mehdi? Mehdi, yeah. Mehdi's his sort of colloquial short name among his friends. Um, he really is, a, is an amalgam of, of all sorts of, uh, of people that I've met over the years. He's, he's young. Um, he has a, a multi-ethnic background, which increasingly is part and parcel of, uh, of the way the world works here, particularly in California. Um, and he, he wants to succeed. He's driven 
um, to do that. He comes from a background that was not wealthy, and he has the ambition to either become famous or rich, uh, preferably both. But I think um, fame overall is what he craves, but um, he wouldn't be averse to making a few dollars along the way, and that's where the pressures come in. Just how is medical research and drug development funded today? Uh, it's complicated. Um, obviously, the pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical companies fund internal research, and then they also contract externally for sponsored research at academic medical centers and institutions you know, across, across the world, in fact, not just across the country. And so researchers in medical centers compete for that sponsored research, but the most prestigious money from an academic researcher to get, of course, is a competitive peer-reviewed grant from something like the National Institutes of Health. And often researchers have both of those funding resources. Now, these drug companies obviously under great pressure to get results, and the, the final results is profit. <laughs> yeah, well, it's profit. I mean, most of the big pharmaceutical companies, of course, are publicly traded entities. So there's the board of trustees and uh, the board of directors, rather, and the shareholders. You're sitting behind the companies, and the pressures are enormous. It costs in excess of $100 million to get a new major drug to market, say a new anti-cancer drug, something like that. And that money has to be recovered at some point for that drug. And of course, for all the drugs that they invest in that actually don't make it to market, that money needs to be pulled back too. So it is a huge money business. And many of the biggest companies in the U.S. are pharmaceutical companies. You have some interesting characters that revolve around Medi. Uh... He's kind of a loner, keeps to himself, but, uh, you know, there's women around. Yeah, Mehdi, I think, has a, an interesting relationship with with women. Um, he has the sort of uh, uh, eternal search for the, uh, for the uh, perfect partner for his life and, of uh, course, is more focused on his work than on the women and is not totally at ease when dealing with... Uh, women, or indeed with some of his male colleagues either. He's, uh, as you say, he's a bit of a loner and a little bit unsure of himself, except in the work environment where he actually has great confidence in his own abilities and not as much confidence, perhaps rightly or wrongly, in those above him in the system. And that is, a, is an interesting dynamic. Tell us about Lucy and Bing. Is it Cherie? Yeah, yes. Um, well, well, being as a, another researcher, I'm a little bit like Medi Adams, but he is sponsored by a different company. And that other company is doing research, developing drugs that directly compete with those that um, Medi Adams is involved in. And so there's a, there's a tension there between those two companies. And Lucy works for the company that sponsors um, Medi, but falls romantically for, for Bing, who in fact is with another company, and that produces for her you know, a, a conflict that's not uncommon. She's got her emotions pulling her one way, and the desire perhaps to find out what Bing's company is doing and bring that information back to the advantage of the company she works for. But at the same time, she's got this romantic relationship to him that is in the way of that process, which is not uncommon, I think, um, in this particular environment. And adding to the conflict, when you're talking about gene therapy and your book, we're talking about uh, using animals as, you know, the, the guinea pig, so to speak. Uh, what kind of animals are we dealing with here? And what's this animal liberation group doing in the story? I think one of the big controversies in, in biomedical research is, is how the basic research is done. Clearly, at the end of the process, when a drug has shown promise in the experimental lab, it then has to be tried on um, consenting patients. But prior to that, when one's trying to establish whether there's a potential biological therapeutic benefit, then a lot of that work is done on animals, and that's... Um, where the ethical treatment of animals 
um, and the ethical management of, ha of animals becomes a major issue. Medical schools take great care to conduct that research in, a, in an ethical and humane way, but nonetheless, there are other individuals in society who feel that animal-based research is, uh, is rarely legitimate, um, if ever. The animals in this particular story are um, especially bred strain of mice. Uh, but nonetheless, it is animal research, and that rouses potent emotions in, in some people. Um, certainly, primate research does, and pushing it back you know, along into other experimental animals arouses equal emotion in some people. And there are groups, organizations that come together to make sure that treatment of animals is humane and sometimes go beyond that to try to prevent animal research, period. Is there a specific character in this group that poses some problems uh, for this research and to any of the main characters? Well, in, in a sense, yes. So what, what's happening here is that I think within the animal group, there are some individuals who are altruistic and are doing what they do for pure motives. And to some extent, that they become exploited by others who see advantage to using the animal activists um, in some ways to affect research programs and to their own benefit. And that's a deeper part of the, of the story that I think emerges as, as we go through. Now, this one pharmaceutical company, uh, is that pronounced Alice? Yeah, um, Alice is... Um, uh, a, a small biotech company that was, is founded around one or two uh, products. That's how many of these small companies start. It's a highly risky business. The majority of them fail. Um, and this one is struggling to, as it were, keep its nose above water and um, get its trials completed such that it can then bring... Uh, one of its products to market, at which point the value of the company would become, you know, show an exponential increase and everybody would profit. But whether they get that or not is touch and go. Now, you have placed this company uh, next to two porn movie studios. Why did you <laughs> <Yes>. do that? <laughs> well, it, 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 one of the things I, I think that's so interesting about our society and the way you know, the way we work is, is this huge um, diversity of, of human endeavors that go along, not all of which are approved by anybody or everybody or even by uh, small segments of society. So we've got drug research, which is approved by most but opposed by animal activists, you know, right next to uh, the porn movie industry, which does exist out in the valley there. Um, which again is a, a, perhaps is disapproved by much of society, but approved by others, and these are acting hand in glove. And I put them together because they both have a desire to be protective of their activities and sort of secretive in a way. And I thought that was a, an amusing counterpoint. And you have an odd mix with the board of directors of Alice. Well, I'm not sure that that mix is that odd. I've talked to many people over the years who who have been involved in small companies and uh, read about small companies, had some peripheral involvement myself. And the, the actual individuals are, are mythical, if you like. Um, but that, that myth, I think, is well-based. It does consist of a mixture of investors, um, lawyers, scientists, um, and uh, entrepreneurs. Uh, there are people there to make money. There are people there to do good. Um, there are people there to try to do both of those things simultaneously, and that the tension as to which of those goals triumphs is part of what makes these boards function. Um, in some respects, they're there to make money, um, and they're there to make money for themselves. And in this story, this pharmaceutical company, Alice, uh, you've propelled them into a crisis, and, uh, you know, I guess Medi's right in the middle of it. <laughs> yes, he's a... Uh... He's sort of unwittingly caught. He, he, in some ways, is believes that he's using the company to achieve his own goals, but he is, as the story goes on, it dawns on him that, in fact, the company is using him to achieve its goals. And uh, so, again, there's another 
dynamic tension there uh, between the two. And you know, if they can cooperate, then maybe the outcome will be good. If they can't, then it will not be good. It will be bad. And that, that pressure is, is there. I, I, I like these dynamic tensions that are part of all of our lives. And I think this particular story has got several threads that have these tensions that we have to manage, these conflicts, if you wish. Right. Biotech company competition, the race for a new drug approval, and rules that are there to be broken. <laughs> well, yeah, that's yeah, sort of controversial. Um, the, the, the rules are there. They're not well written. Um, clearly, biotechnology companies, small and large, you know, try to operate within the rules, but we all see that occasionally... You know, even large public companies, and we've all seen that in the press in the last several years, some of the leaders of those companies get so close to those boundaries that sometimes they dip a toe across the other side, and then, you know, then there are large problems, and companies rise and fall, and individuals rise and fall on, on, on those judgments. It's, it's a very delicate balance as to what is permissible and what isn't, and what is ethical, and what isn't. And of course, ethical values change with time, too. And the setting is Malibu, that place for the rich and famous. Uh, yeah, I, I live there, and I find it a fascinating, <clears throat> fascinating place. Um, it's it's a place where everybody sort of mingles together, and it's hard to figure out who's who. Um, uh, you, you can't really tell one person from another. They they just sort of mix together, and that's one of the things I like about it. It's, it's a very natural environment, although from the outside it may seem rather bizarre. We've been listening to C. Rex Sartorius. He is the author of his book, Malibu Med and the Sweet Smell of Money. C. Rex, tell us how to get your book. Oh, well, um, it's available in a couple of bookstores in Malibu, but that's a long trek for some <laughs> of your listeners. Um, uh, it's on um, Amazon, it's on Barnes & Noble, um, there's an e-version, there's a paperback, and, and, and there's a hardback. Um, I love, the, personally, bookstores, and I would be sad to see bookstores go away. Uh, but I think we all recognize that you know, the, the media and electronic media in particular are increasingly the way in which people buy and read books. I certainly read e-books, um, certainly traveling, more than I do paper books, partly just because of convenience. Uh, so I hope the, the bookstores survive, and um, if you wish to come to Malibu and buy one, that would be great. Uh, but otherwise, uh, e-books work. Well, thank you, C-Rex, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, and uh, I, I thank you for, for your interest. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.